was thinking about you had parent-teacher conference tonight, right? So, like, how do you decide what you want to portray in that setting? Yeah, nobody ever comes to see the speech-language pathologist. Oh. I don't show up on a student schedule, so nobody ever comes to see me. But what I do is I create these opportunities to talk about the relationship between language and reading, and I, I love to explain the whole notion of language as the part of the operating system of the brain. Mm-hmm. Things like reading and writing, or um, they're the apps. And then I'll be like, and when somebody teaches you about the manifest destiny, that's a file. And so, <laughs> so I did take that opportunity to have that conversation with one of our new teachers. Um, with one of our new teachers, just like late this afternoon. So I do kind of try to roam around a little okay. bit during conferences, and if it's slow, I just try to talk with talk with my colleagues about our students in common and Mm. yeah I'm picturing you like flagging down random parents being like let me tell you about this operating system that is language excuse me (laughs) with like a sign you know in the hallway (laughs) want to learn more about language (laughs) right this way and then like arrows you know with your with your (laughs) t-shirt with your I heart (laughs) t-shirt exactly oh goodness yeah Well, that sounds like a good way to use your time productively, even if you're you're feeling a little on the fringes. Yes. Yes. But we're not fringes. I know. We're the operating system. We we're part of the operating <laughs> system. So, yeah. So, I'll say things that are part of the Windows or iOS of our brains include language, attention, memory, processing speed. And people are like, oh, okay. I'm like, so what happens if there's a problem with the operating system? Will you be able to open your app or your program? No. Exactly. <laughs> That's such a good analogy. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Do you remember that old joke, three comdis professionals walk into a bar and, oh, wait, you've never heard it before? We haven't either. But what if three comdis professionals did walk into a bar sit down at a table and have thoughtful conversations about a whole host of topics. What if you could eavesdrop and maybe even pull up your own chair? And what if that bar was actually a coffee shop because at least one of us would inevitably fall asleep or want to dance after a couple glasses of wine? This series is that conversation in the coffee shop where you get to listen in on thoughtful discussions about a variety of topics from the perspective of a medical SLP, a school-based SLP, and a professor in communication sciences and disorders. Grab a drink, pull up a chair, and let's get started. I love this conversation, my friends. Today is episode three of our Fishbowl podcast, Fishbowl series, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about what we do with what we know. And we're going to talk about tenants of therapy, goal setting, interventions. Um, who wants to start? Well, my I want to say my first thought that I went to, I was like, oh, I better look up what are the components of objectives or like Ooh, let me look at solution-focused goal writing. And then I thought, (laughs) you know, I'm not teaching how to do those things in a discreet way. We're having a conversation more about the decision-making as part of therapy and goal writing. Yes. That's my preface comment. But I'd love to have Katie or Maddie have one of you jump in. 
I, when I work with, with goal setting, when I, you know, working in, in the setting here at the university, um, it's been a very helpful thing for me to step back because as a practicing clinician and I've done it for so many years, I always, I'm almost like, okay, this is, it just, it's the way I think it's not hard for me to create goals because I do an assessment. I see where the needs are. I get the the input from the patient in my setting or the, the care partner and boom, the goals almost write themselves. So I think things need to be um, focused really on what, what is in the best interest of the, the people we're working with. Hmm. I do a lot with, um, well, clinically and in class teaching with child language and then with fluency. Um, and so I feel like there's always this straddling of with children, do we focus on the developmental expectations and trying to get the child to align with or sort of catch up? Or do we focus on the functional needs within the communication setting, whether that's home, whether that's school? And probably it's kind of a both and when kids are younger, in my mind. And then I think it shifts to more weight on the functional parts. Um, and certainly, Katie, with your focus at the high school level, I see you nodding. Um, but that's, you know, maybe something that, that you're able to comment on. Sure. So when I think about, you know, what am I doing with a student? How are we sharing space and time together? I kind of think about what's going to be the experience uh, for the student when they're 27, when they're out of the system, when they're not hanging out with me. And it is a both and. So um, it's still a both and for me when I'm working with students who are in high school. So it's not that we completely abandon, you know, kind of targeting skill sets, but we also simultaneously are very intentional about mm-hmm. developing and recruiting just-in-time compensatory strategies. So there's there's a lot of focus on building self-awareness around this notion of, do I know or do I not know? And if I don't know, what do I do about it? Um, but I think sometimes that can make for some pretty complex uh, goals and objectives. And I don't say complex, meaning like, I think if I handed my goals and objectives off to another speech language pathologist, A-okay. When I have kind of this shared focus on communication where I'm targeting skill transfer, I have to sometimes dial it back a little bit, maybe. I don't know if that's making sense. I might be getting ahead a little bit, but um, yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that it's more... um, some of those goals are more process focused, like the what do you do if? Not so much that. I think for me, um, when I am writing a goal, I'm thinking about what is it ultimately that I want the student to do. And then I have kind of those big language buckets where, you know, I think sometimes we can focus a little bit too narrowly and that makes for a really beautiful objective that doesn't necessarily tell the story of why we're doing what we're doing. So if I have an objective, for example, that's targeting synonyms or antonyms, for what purpose, to what end? Why do we care? And so should I be writing an objective about synonyms or antonyms, or should I be writing an objective that references word finding and word knowledge? 
Because ultimately, what is knowing a synonym and service to, right? And so when I write goals and objectives, I write from that perspective. I didn't always, but I do now. Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so I think sometimes we focus on the tasks we are doing Mm -hmm. with students and clients, and we build our objectives around that. But what I would encourage us to do is to reflect upon why are we doing this task? What is that ultimately in service to in terms of developing an aspect of that operating system that is language, right? So if if I'm targeting this, this bit or this piece, is that clear to whomever may be reading that goal or those objectives why that's being targeted? So with your synonym example, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to attempt to expand and you, you can course correct if sure. I'm not on track. But so synonyms are in service of expanding word knowledge. And then that might take place um, either in, in an academic setting, maybe it's in a spoken explanation. The person's going to use language mm-hmm. with more precision um, and clarity. So the synonyms, it's not the synonym isn't the end in itself. It's because it leads to that clarity. That's right. And so it's, it's, when I explain it to students, I say, you know, I want you to have lots of different choices to say exactly what you want to say, exactly the way you want to say it, or have lots of different choices to think a thought in your head. And so when you're wondering, why are we doing all these things with words? That's why. Mm. And I want you to be able to get at those words um, a little bit more easily if you can. So we're kind of laying down tracks and routes and the more ways in, the more ways out. So that's why we talk about and work on and think about these word relationships in lots of different ways. So if I were telling a student why we were doing what we were doing, that is how I would explain it to them. That almost always makes sense to them. Hmm. And then sometimes we have the conversation around, you know, there's more to life than just big. And, you know, so then we talk about um, where, like, situations where we might choose a different word. Uh, and I talk about how I can't roll through the McDonald's drive through and order a gargantuan Coke because that would also be kind of unexpected. And so, so students really buy in if they understand the why. I don't know if we always spend enough time deliberately demystifying our why for ourselves, not just in our goal writing, but I think even as we're kind of planning and deciding and choosing what we're doing and why we're doing it. I love that. That is such an important buy-in. Now I come from the medical setting, um, rehabilitative, where you're coming from, habilitative. And Janet, you're from habilitative as well, but we so need that buy-in with those patients and the families we work with. We're asking them to trust, give your time, come work with us. And this is why we're doing what we're doing, the big why. And if you can connect those dots and, and paint that picture, that is just such an integral part that sometimes we forget. I was thinking of a, a story from early in my clinical experience that I think illustrates for me sort of a mindset shift. Um, 
one of, I was working in a clinical setting and one of my assignments was to provide speech and language therapy at a private Catholic school that had a special education track, and, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but there were several students who I worked with individually or in small groups for some, some social skills building and, and general language. But one of the, the students, he had been doing some work on kind of like, I think it was speech practice as part of like Special Olympics or some category of that. But his parents asked me to help coach him and he was invited to do a speech at his graduation. So this is a student who was really uncomfortable, like if he spilled his drink at Hardee's, going up and asking for a rag to wipe the table. Um, and so we had worked on things at that level. Um, and so we were working on, you know, writing the speech, delivering it. He also had some rate that tended to go, he tended to go really fast, especially if he was nervous. And then some just kind of overall imprecision with articulation. So we worked on the speech, we practiced the speech. A lot of it was getting it slower, clearer, et cetera. Um, and I was there when he gave the speech to this auditorium of the broader high school class, not just the special education students. And I am kind of embarrassed to say this, but he, I just remember my, like my first response was disappointment because he, he got up there and he slid into his fast rate and imprecise talking. And I thought, oh my gosh, all of our efforts are wasted that was my first response. And then I had a little bit of a pause and I was like, wait a minute here. This student who couldn't go up and ask for a rag to clean the table stood in front of this auditorium of 300 plus people, gave a speech that he had written, received a standing ovation afterwards. That is success. And so... <laughs> That was a really good just framework that it's not about those minutia goals. Those are in service to the larger goals. And so I think that's where um, what you're saying, Katie, kind of reminds me of that situation. Well said. And then it, it behooves us to redefine success. You, you know? make a great point with that. You know, when you think about kind of mind mindset shifts, um, mm -hmm. I think there was a part of me when I left graduate school that thought I was charged with fixing, mm -hmm. fixing the system as though nothing had ever gone wrong. A hundred percent. Now having done this mm -hmm. for a long time, I realize I, I'm not charged with fixing the system. I am not convinced or that when person. we, or a person, I am not convinced that when we see challenges that persist, particularly with language, that our role is to fix, nor do I think that's necessarily realistic. Uh, I think it's to minimize impact of whatever's happening within that system in a moment. And I think that is true for adults. And I think that's also true for the students that I work with. And I think it would be helpful if we as 
speech language pathologists were told that that was also part of what we do. Mm. Because we can fix speech sounds, right? We can get them to the place where nobody ever knew that was a thing. For some kids. For some kids. But I think when we're going through our training, there's this thinking, intended or not, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think anybody ever said your job is to fix clients, patients, or students that you work with. Nobody ever really said that to me. But I think, I thought, okay, if I'm doing this well, and if I'm doing this right, I'm going to create a system with as much automaticity and efficiency as a system that's never, ever had any sort of an issue with it. And I wish somebody had told me, "Mm, not exactly, but what you're going to do is still going to be really amazing and awesome and change Mm -hmm. the lives of your patients, clients, and students. I just want to clarify when you say system, in this case, you're referring again to like the language system within the individual, right? Sort of the individual's... um, operating system. Yes. But I I would say I think about that in the context of language, but I think that's also true with some of my students who struggled with fluency. Mm. Um, Again, it's that focus on minimizing impact in a moment um, so that that individual is free to say and, and do and be in a moment, however they choose. And they have their communication skills on board to facilitate that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking when you first said system, I was thinking about policies and the way systems <laughs> so um, nice. of like organizational systems work. Yeah. I'm glad you but, clarified that. Yeah. I was thinking as you kind of moved into talking about fluency, um, just not that long ago, I've had some learning about solution focused brief therapy and solution-focused goal writing. There's also some overlap in motivational interviewing. But one of the questions that's often asked before you start writing the goals is, what would be different? So let's say you looked back in five years or 14 years and said, I'm so glad I did speech therapy. Why would that be? And for fluency, it it's a nice way to get the focus shifted from being perfectly fluent to being, I would raise my hand in class. I'd be more confident. I would, whatever it is, it shifts it to more of a functional focus, even though you may work on the speech techniques, but again, they're in service of that. What would be different? So Maddie, I have some curiosities as we're talking and I'm thinking about you know, kind of the lens that I'm viewing therapy tasks and goals and objectives through, I'm wondering, is, is that a similar experience? Is that different? So, so how do you kind of, what is the mindset in that rehabilitative context? I guess is my question. The most, I'm glad you asked, because I know you two come from a, a slightly different angle Um, From the rehabilitative view, our purpose is to restore as much function, as much communication ability that we can and give that patient or person back the grace and the dignity 
and their independence that they may have lost. And again, keeping your eyes on, on the big picture. And one of the favorite, my favorite things about being a speech pathologist is I'm very humble that I get to be part of that role and that these people trust me and that I do get to work in their lives and make the difference that I try to do the best that I can. You piqued my interest earlier when you said, um, and you know, Janet, you, you watched your, your student get up and how many times do we take away some of the, I'm not sure of the right word, but some of the responsibility from those we work with and put it on ourselves and then think that we have failed. Mm. And it's, that's not, this is the third time during this episode I've gotten po- uh, goosebumps. I love this conversation. We are working for the people we work with. Does that make sense? So to answer your question, it's to give back the best that we can and to rehabilitate. I think you put your finger on something really important. I mean, I've thought about this as a parent, how often you measure how good of a parent you are by Mm -hmm. the success of your child or the adjusted, well-adjustedness or however you want to measure that. Um, And I think you, you put your finger exactly on that, Maddie, that it's really not that's not a way to measure our success as clinicians. If we get to 100% accurate on our production and initial medial and final positions mm-hmm. or whatever the, the, the goal is. Yeah, it, it's much more about celebrating the, the progress of the person. Right. Katie, you said something a couple of episodes ago about you know, the speech therapy room should be one of the happiest places for a little kid. And I love it when I walk out into a waiting room and I just get the play signal going, you know, the hand sign going. And now I'm not super into kids. Anybody who knows me knows that. Um, Definitely in the adult medical realm. But I've had kids tell me that I'm better than Santa Claus. To me, that's success. To me, that's when I'm able to have I'm able to enter that child's world or that person's world and that's where I'm effective so when my patients come into my therapy room I have my chair re- the chair ready and they're my guest of honor but the responsibility is in their court and the success lies with them not necessarily in my clinical skills because I can be the best or not I know I'm good enough but I don't have to be everything because it's got to be that driver's got to come from the people we work with. Hmm. I think that's huge. And I think it gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think like if you even consider the story that Janet shared with, uh, with us yes. earlier in this episode where she was talking about her student and she said, the first thing I noticed yep. were the things that were left undone. And, and what makes us good at what we do what we are trained to do to pick up on nuance and detail and shape and cue and prompt and specificity, all of those things that go into kind of the nuts and bolts of therapy Mm -hmm. are also sometimes the things that 
when turned back upon ourselves, there's almost like this this hypercritical focus on, are you sure that was the best intervention task you could have designed? Is this, um, did you cue too much? Did you not cue enough? How are you, how are you moving this student mm-hmm. along? You know, where's that sense of acceleration or that urgency? I, I think there are some things that can happen that because of how we are trained mm-hmm. are very helpful and sometimes not always helpful <laughs> when we're reflecting on the work that we do with our patients, our clients, and our students. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. It does make sense. Yeah, I often say that our our individual strengths and weaknesses are often kind of like, you know, the two sides of the same coin, right? Right. You might be someone who's very, very um, kind of um, creative and free-flowing, but maybe because of that, you're less organized. Um, And I think what you're you're pointing to is more on a professional level and perhaps some personal things of what might draw us to this profession, but that because we're, yeah, able to kind of have that nuance, get the hierarchy and the queuing, get that all tight, um, that's a strength and a liability, right? Because I was, I, the word shame keeps coming into my head, right? Just thinking about how much shame is sort of layered on the that was really great, but, you know, you're only at 88%, not 98 or whatever. You sound like Brene Brown, our own Brene yeah. Brown on here. Um, I have a question I want to formulate to the two of you. And it'll be our last question before we move on to our next episode. And it's about... Um, Years ago, I worked with somebody named Kate. I called her Kate the Great. And she was came to me in my, I was in a skilled nursing facility at the time, and she was working on aphasia. And she kept saying, well, I, I, I have to use this program. I have to do, you know, either semantic feature analysis or, you know, and she came up with this whole list of things, you know, she had to do. And she had, and I said, well, you're doing word finding and you're doing executive function, you're doing memory. Yeah, but how do I do that? She was so caught up in the details of intervention that she lost sight of the big picture. Have you guys ever had that happen to you? And what do you do about it? I see, I'm first thinking of students, so I'm not trying to distance myself from that question. But I think when students are first um, thinking about evidence-based practice, thinking about doing things correctly, there's a deep commitment to like, I want to do the best that I can for my patients, students, clients. And often that's within a structured format. I, I see sort of comfort in, like, I know that this thing has strong evidence. I'm going to do that program thing. And that is going to result in good outcomes. And especially in the fluency world, there's a lot of evidence that's drawn from the world of counseling, which is really um, front and centers the client-clinician relationship and the importance of that in the change process. And so I guess I would, I would offer that to, especially to emerging clinicians who are just starting their professional journey, that evidence... I, I'm stumbling around here a little bit, but 
you don't have to have a program for it to go perfectly. You do need to understand quality intervention, but you're a part of the equation and that's not something to be dismissed. That's as important or more important than whether you select the correct approach. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, I do think that um, when we consider evidence-based practices, our clients, students, or patients are only going to do what they feel comfortable and safe doing. So time spent building a relationship, creating that rapport, and I would use the word safety, creating an atmosphere of safety where I can take risks with this kind of sketchy system that you're asking me to work on, language system, or this kind of sketchy process that you're asking me to change. Um, If we have that expectation for therapy, boy, we better be deliberate and intentional about creating a space that is conducive for doing that. I am less interested in 25 productions and very little interaction around why we're doing what we're doing and much more interested in 11 really solid productions where we have this shared experience and a shared understanding and some self-monitoring embedded and some moments of just-in-time compensatory strategies as we go. Because if I say, I'm going to wait to work on compensatory strategies until you're 90% successful with this thing I'm asking you to do at this level of queuing, well, that self-monitoring piece may not come as soon or be as helpful in terms of that progression with those interventions. So I don't think it's ever too soon to start building things like awareness. Even with little people, by the way. Right. Right. It's like when we, when we first have that evaluation, we need to be thinking about discharge and what is our end goal and where are we going? So from the very beginning, we start preparing for the end. Excellent note to end on because our very next episode is going to be on letting go discharging when do we do that how do we know all of those pieces about dismissal closure and transition thanks this was great fun i hope today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better slp continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge Thank you for downloading the Missing Link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.